Acts chapter 7, verses 30 to 60. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malach and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, 
Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we come to that text. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Father, we, that is our prayer, and we long to adore you and to see you as you truly are. And this passage gives us special insight. And we pray, Father, that uh, you once again would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would create in us fertile soil uh, for the seed to be deposited so that there might grow up a harvest within us and amongst us. Father, we, we need nothing more than to see you as you truly are and to see what it is you are doing in the world. And so we pray that once again, we pray that by your Spirit, through your Word, and, the, and through the saving work of your Son, you would reveal yourself to us now, that we might leave here a changed people. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Today we're going to take a brief tour of the whole Bible, because that's what Stephen does in his sermon. Now, why would you do that? We already get to 40 minutes uh, when we're preaching five verses. So why would anyone choose to preach the whole Bible in a single sermon? Why did Stephen preach this particular sermon in the way he did? We're reminded right there in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? And the whole sermon is an answer to that question. Are these charges true? The whole sermon is a response to the charges. Now, what charges? We need to dip back into chapter 6 to get a bit of context. Remember, we left off chapter 6, verse 7 last week. The seven had been appointed, the seven deacons who are going to oversee the distribution of food to widows. Amongst them was a man by the name of Stephen. Okay, so now pick it up with me. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy holy place and the law. And that is a key verse for us. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, which holy place? The temple. And the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was the face of an angel. The charge that Stephen, the charge is rather that Stephen is promoting a Jesus of Nazareth who is against the temple 
and against the law. Jesus undermines the temple and the law, and Stephen is promoting him. That's the charge. The first part of the charge is that Jesus and his disciple Stephen are opposed to the law, to the Torah. To answer the charge, Stephen takes his accusers on a tour of the Torah. So we're going to go on the tour with him. Have a look at verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Stephen picks up the story in the first book of the Torah, in Genesis chapter 12. And he addresses his accusers as brothers and fathers. He embraces their common history. The history begins with the God of glory. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. Abraham was the new Adam. Adam had fallen. But through Abraham, God in his grace promised to turn back the curse and restore the blessing to humanity. He sends Abraham, with that in mind, he sends Abraham on a journey. He sends him, but he also goes with him. Now this is important in thinking about the temple. The second charge against Stephen was that Jesus wanted to destroy the temple. What is the temple? What is the temple all about? The temple is all about God's presence. In his opening remarks, Stephen is making the point that God's presence is with his people. God was with Abraham. That's the point. But even so, Abraham himself did not receive all that God had promised. That would come through his offspring, through his line. Look at verse 4. And after Abraham's father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. No matter what their situation, God is with his people, working to fulfill his promises in his time. Abraham fathered Isaac, the child of the promise. Isaac fathered Jacob, who fathered the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. Amongst them was Joseph. But there was a problem. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Notice the words that follow. But God was with him. God is wherever his people are. He is with them to save and to deliver. God was with him, verse 10, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. 
Joseph was rejected by his brothers. But God rescued him and vindicated him and exalted him as ruler. Sound familiar? I hope so. God's saving grace was not restricted to Joseph. Through his suffering servant, God was saving his people and in fact saving the whole world. You can read all about that in the book of Exodus. But here's Stephen's summary from verse 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 souls in all. Jacob and his descendants descendants end up in Egypt, and there the Lord is faithful to his promises. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. God is fulfilling his promises. The promise is advancing. But as the promise advances, so the opposition to the promise advances. Verse 18, There arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. The promise is under threat. And so God raises up another servant. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Moses was not the member of a boy band. That beauty is not physical. It is God's favor upon him. We see that in verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Moses, favored by God, is mighty in word and deed, and he visits his brothers. Verse 24, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Moses, mighty in word and deed, comes as defender and avenger of the oppressed, but he is not received. He comes to his brothers for their salvation, but they do not understand. God sends him as ruler and judge to reconcile and to bring peace, but his own people reject him. And so Moses has to flee into the desert. Sound familiar? I hope so. Forty years pass, and then, chapter 7, verse 30, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Once again... The Lord is with his people, wherever they are, because he is faithful to his covenant. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, I am the God of the covenant. The God of the promise sends Moses back to his brothers in Egypt. 
This is Stephen's concluding assessment of Moses, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. That's who Moses is and that's who God sent him to be. How did the people receive him? Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses, appointed by God as ruler and redeemer of his people, custodian of God's living word, announced by signs and wonders to lead the people through the wilderness into the promised land, rejected and scorned by the people. By now, the echoes are too loud to ignore. Moses means more than Moses. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses, appointed by God as Savior but rejected by his brothers, points to the one who will come after him, a prophet like me. Coming after me. Stephen is reminding his brothers and fathers of what they already know but desperately want to forget. This is the first charge. The first charge is concerned with the law. Stephen is showing that Israel rejected Moses and disobeyed the law from the very beginning. Now he moves to the second charge, the temple. Now he's already made a few references to the temple, but here in verse 44, he turns to give it the full treatment. So read there with me, verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of the witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in, With Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was, until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. God was present with his people as they moved around the wilderness. The first symbol of that presence was the tent of the meeting. Now, tents by design are mobile structures. They are designed to move. The tent of the meeting had to move because God was on the move. And he was leading his people through the desert to the promised land by a pillar of smoke and fire. When Joshua took over from Moses to lead the people into the land, the tent went with them. Why? Because God went with them. God was with his people. 
defeating their enemies. So it was until the days of David, who, like Joseph, like Moses, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He asked to build a permanent place for God, a fixed location for God, but he was denied. And that duty fell to Solomon. Even so, Solomon's temple, in all of its glory, could not contain the glory of God. Look at verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me? Says the Lord. What is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? The temple itself, the temple in all its glory, Solomon's temple, even Solomon's temple was a temporary arrangement. In other words, the temple is just like the law. It's a sign pointing beyond itself to the true reality, to the real thing. It's just a sign. That's Stephen's whole case. And he's made it from the Torah itself. He was accused of rejecting the Torah. He responds by taking them on a tour of the Torah. He makes his case from Israel's own history. And now he takes the knife and he twists it. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law, as delivered by angels, did not keep it. Stephen switches here from the defendant to the prosecutor. His accusers are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. That's shorthand for covenant breakers. They are covenant breakers. They've broken the covenant. They've joined the long line of leaders in Israel who have not been faithful to God, who have been unfaithful. They're playing out the same patterns of rebellion and hypocrisy handed down to them by their forefathers. The persecution of God's messengers, God's prophets, is climaxing in Stephen's generation. Abraham, Moses, and Joseph were all announcements of Jesus. That's what they were, and that's all they were. They were announcements of Jesus. He was the righteous one. He was the law and the temple in human flesh. He was the word of God and the presence of God as a man. They persecuted the prophets. Him they betrayed and murdered. They received the law only to break it. Only to shatter the tablets. The leaders of Israel who charged Stephen with being against the law, proved themselves in contempt of court because they rejected Jesus. And by rejecting him, they have rejected God's word, God's will, and God's presence in their lives. By rejecting the Son, they have rejected the Father and the Spirit. 
Now, of course, that is not a pleasing thing to hear said about yourself. That is not a pleasing verdict, and it is not well received. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen doesn't stop there. He pushes on, and he pushes them over the edge. Look at 55. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The sermon starts and finishes with the glory of God. The sermon is bracketed by the glory of God because it's about Jesus. And Jesus is the fullest manifestation of God's glory. Stephen sees him standing at the right hand of the Most High. Now normally he is seated at the right hand. But here he stands. He stands in judgment to vindicate Stephen's testimony and to welcome him into the presence of God. Here is Jesus sharing in the very same glory That the Father radiates. Radiating the very same glory of God. Hearing that is too much for Stephen's accusers. That is blasphemy. According to them. Verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Brothers and sisters. This is why we can never ever agree with Jehovah's Witnesses. Never. We must love them. We must love them. And we must witness to them. But we can never, ever agree with them. Jesus is God in all his glory. He's not the Father. He's not the Spirit. But he is God. God the Son. Now, we might not be unsure about, we might be unsure about what Stephen was saying, but those who were listening to him were crystal clear. It's why they wanted to kill him. They were absolutely clear that this was blasphemy, that he was saying, what was he saying? Jesus is God. It's why they killed him. So we may be uncertain, but they were not uncertain. They were crystal clear. And that truth, continues to alienate people to this day. He was saying, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is God. It's what got him killed. For saying it, he dies just like his master died, outside the city, in an act of mob justice, but trusting his father and praying for the forgiveness of those who are killing him Jesus is standing all the while, even as he is being killed in this most horrific way. He can see the Lord Jesus standing to vindicate his testimony and to welcome him home. Those are the final words of the church's first martyr. They are extraordinary in themselves and we, could really, we really could just stop now and pray. And be done with it. And many of you wish that we would. But. 
we do need to take a few moments to consider what all of this means for us. At least two things that we can take away. Two lessons. One, a lesson, a lesson in method, and the other, a lesson in content. So firstly, the, the lesson in method. We should read the Bible the way Stephen reads the Bible. Did you notice how he reads it? He reads the Old Testament as promise and Jesus as fulfillment. That's how he reads the scriptures. The Old Testament as promise, Jesus as fulfillment. And that's exactly how we should read it. The Old Testament is never supposed to be cut off from what follows. As if it's kind of two categories, two different gods. By no means. The Old Testament always points forward. It always anticipates in the way that a question demands an answer. In the way that a call summons a response. In the way that a promise invites fulfillment. The Old Testament is about Jesus and we must read it that way. The Bible is one story in two parts. Promise and then fulfillment. We need to read it that way. Because when we don't, all sorts of havoc breaks loose. When we don't, we end up misunderstanding the Old Testament or worse, distorting it. We've all heard the Old Testament horribly abused. Because when you separate it from Christ, you can make it mean just about anything you want. Especially if you isolate just a few verses here or a few verses there. You can make it mean whatever you want. That's not what Stephen does. He reads the Old Testament as promise, Jesus as fulfillment. That's his method. Now his content. His method is Jesus. His content is also Jesus. And Jesus, the sharp end of his message, Jesus is the end of religion. And the beginning of faith. Jesus is the end of religion and the beginning of faith. The religious leaders in every generation of Israel's history and in our generation were guilty of taking good gifts like the law and the temple and making them an end in themselves. They read the law and the temple as if they were fulfillment, not promise. They read the Old Testament as if it didn't point forward to Jesus, as if it just terminated in itself. As if that was the end of the story. They chose to worship the gifts. Now why do we do that? Why is that the inclination of every human heart, to worship the gifts? Why? So that you don't have to worship the giver. You see, the gifts... You can control. You can't control the giver. That's why they wanted the golden calf instead of God himself. They wanted a law that they could master. And they wanted a temple that they could run. That's why they kept persecuting the prophets. Because the prophets would point them to the most high. 
whose throne is heaven and for whom the whole earth is nothing but a footstool. That God you cannot control. But religion wants control. Brothers and sisters, where are we religious? Where are we religious? Which corners, in which corners of our hearts is religion lurking? Don't think that coming here Sunday by Sunday makes you a Christian in and of itself. We mustn't think that biblical literacy or theological orthodoxy makes us Christian. Your theology, my theology, cannot conjure up the presence of the living God in our lives. Our Bible reading can't do it, even if we read the Bible the right way. Promise fulfillment. Being part of this community does not make you right with God. Keeping the Christian law, the Christian law, Bible reading, conversational prayer, acts of mercy, these things are powerless to rescue us. Coming to the Christian temple, the local church, cannot save us. Making Christian sacrifices of time and money to the church and to the poor do not secure God's favor upon us. Here's a good rule of thumb. If you can control it, it cannot save you. You can be sure it cannot save you. If you can control it, it is religion. And on its own, it is worthless in the eyes of God. Now when I say that, does it annoy you? Does it provoke you just a little? Prick you, poke you? Now you can be double sure it's religion. Because religion gets angry when you question it. What's the solution? The only alternative to religion is Jesus. The only alternative. If you want the word of God and the will of God, if you want to hear the voice of God, if you want to hear what God has to say to you, Go to Jesus. He is the word of God. He is God's fullest self-disclosure of himself. He is God most high saying, I want you to know me. And this is who I am. If you want to know me, listen to my son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you want to obey me and to please me, follow him. That's what we mean when we say Jesus has fulfilled the law. He also fulfills the temple. If you want to be in the presence of God, think about it. In the presence of the Most High. If you want that, where do you go? If you are looking for God, where will you find Him? In Jesus. He is God with us, Emmanuel. God with us. Where is Jesus? Where God always is, with his people. With his people by his spirit. 
If someone is looking for God today, they will find him amongst his people. They will find him in the church so long as the church has not forsaken him, exchanged him for religion. He's the end of religion. The end of religion. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. He is the end of the curse and the beginning of blessings eternal. He was favored and appointed by God. He visited his brothers to save, to mediate, to reconcile, to bring peace. He was God's living word, announced by signs and wonders to rule and redeem, and then to lead his people through the wilderness to the promised land. He was the righteous one, but his brothers betrayed and murdered him. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The deepest wickedness of man was God's highest act of love and the means by which he would save the whole world. That's Jesus, and he is the end of religion. You can worship him, You can reject him. The one thing you cannot do is control him. He's the end of religion. Do you know him? Do you know him? Not in the religious sense. Do you know him? Or are you still resisting the Holy Spirit and playing religious games? He's standing at the right hand of the Most High, ready to vindicate you with His righteousness. He's ready to welcome you home. Are you ready to surrender your control? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. All we can do is thank you for King Jesus, who is your word, your righteousness, and your presence. We know he died to put the religion in us to death. Father, help us to stop resisting your spirit. Help us to surrender to the king. Help us to let our religion die. Help us to turn to the one who gives life in abundance. To turn to him in total trust and obedience. Help us, Father, like Stephen, to surrender all that we are to him. Help us, like Stephen, to consider no price too high to gain more of Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen.